the life of a, of a historical figure from the church. And uh, originally, I was going to preach on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is one of my, my all-time favorite um, heroes of the faith. But um, there is more to be read on his life that I have not yet pondered. And uh, I have this motto about preaching things like that, and that is that I will preach no sermon before it's time. So I put that to, so- to the side, and, and God led me on Friday and Saturday to kind of refocus us this morning just on one thing and the bedrock in which that one thing is found. You know, the mission statement of our church, for those of you who don't know it, is to me not just a, a statement on paper. You know, like churches have mission statements. It's something that, that I believe at some level, not just in me but in others, it, it's part of who we are and what we want to be committed to. And, and it goes like this. I wish it was more conversational in, in, in flavor, but it's not. It's just that we want to live, we want to breathe, and we want to die for the sole purpose of loving, living, and declaring the supremacy of Jesus in all things to all people. That's the center of it. That's why we exist. And um, if we're not about that, then really um, what we do here does not matter. I believe fully that at the very center of this book is one thing, Jesus Christ. I believe the heart of God himself has one design in history, and that is to exalt the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And at the center of history, the center of salvation, the center of everything is one thing, and that is Jesus, which is why we're called to make much of him and make him supreme in our church. That's what we're about this morning. And I want to show you why I believe that that mission statement will be fulfilled. In the text of Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 6, Philippians 1, verse 6, I want to show you where our confidence is that that mission statement will be realized. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Now I'm going to back up to a couple of verses prior to that. But um, I want you to be thinking about what is the bedrock confidence that we have that we as a people will, um, will fulfill this great mission statement. I'm going to back up to verse 3. The Apostle Paul is writing. We've already looked at a couple of passages at the end of, of Philippians. And here in the beginning, he goes to encourage them. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You get used to reading scripture and you often don't feel the heart of it, you know. Like you picture the Apostle Paul in a prison cell, which he was in prison when he was writing this and shackled, and maybe he had access to a pen, which he obviously did because he wrote this in prison, and just thinking about the church that he planted in, in a place called Philippi, and just reminding them that every time I think of you, I pray for you, and I pray for you with joy. Like that's, that's what comes to mind and what comes to heart as he's in a prison cell, writing about this little fledgling church that he planted. He's just overwhelmed with a sense of joy and thanksgiving to God for what what their life is like. 
And in particular, giving thanks, according to verse 5, for their partnership in the gospel. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, he came to this town, he preached the gospel, God opened hearts, and they became his partners in ministry from the first day until the time he's in prison. They continued to give to his ministry financially, and the sense is that they were engaged in full spectrum of gospel ministry. That is, they were all about making Jesus known in their lives and with their lips. That's what they were doing, the church. And he was grateful for the way that the gospel was permeating their lives. And in Parkway, I want to say that that's one of the great marks of the spirit alive in a church, is that they love the gospel. And by gospel, I don't mean some little word that's sung about in some 19th century hymn. I, I, I mean gospel with the glorious center of who Jesus is as a supreme one and sufficient one, who, who is sufficient in every way for our salvation. It's a, it's a word full of glory. That, that's one of the marks is of, a, of, a, of a spirit-filled church is that they love the gospel and that they want to see the gospel go outward. Now, it struck me as I was thinking about that, what, what would, would, if Paul was alive in our day, what would he say about Parkway? And I do think at some level, based upon what I know of churches abroad, that Parkway is a place where people have, from before I ever got here, been committed to the simplicity and the centrality of the gospel. And there is a lot of places where that's being compromised for the sake of culture. But it's remained true. And I believe many of the folks that are drawn here are drawn here because they love Jesus and they love the gospel of grace. Salvation by faith in Christ alone by grace alone. That that's what feed their, feeds their soul. I think that's a, that's a work of the Spirit. It's not a work of man. And one of the things that makes it so delightful to be a part of this church family. But not just that. You, you take a look and at Parkway over the past. I've only been here 17 years as of yesterday. And John could speak to the last almost 50. But to see the level of influence that this moderately sized church family has in our city from, let's just go November 1st, 1997, when I hear to today, it's, it's, it's exponential. It's just to see God bring people and to see him um, grow a passion, not only for foreign missions, but to see a passion for our city to be reached and kids to be tutored and all of those things. It's just God has done this. And, and, and you can't point the finger at a person and say, wow, that guy did that. That is a work of the Spirit alive and wanting to bring the gospel to the community. That's, that's it. So I think in some level, Paul would say, I'm thanking the Lord that the gospel is alive in your church even though churches like Philippi and like Parkway have their own problems and challenges, they're still committed to the gospel and to the proclamation, the living out of the gospel. That's a, that's a good thing, and it's something to be celebrated and given thanks for. For all of the things that are negative in our world, the fact of the matter is there are Christians who still believe and still live out and still love and still proclaim the gospel. But then he shifts in verse 6, which is where I want to stay, from looking at what they're doing in terms of the partnership in the gospel to what God began to do and will finish in terms of the work of the gospel. 
That's verse 6. Verse 5 focuses on their work. I'm thankful for your partnership. In verse 6, he's thankful for the fact that God did something and will do something. Verse 6 is one of those verses that is very familiar to most of us. It's probably one of the two most popular verses in the book of Philippians. The other one being, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The second most popular, or depending on who you talk to, maybe the first most popular is this verse. Where he says, and I am sure of this. Just got to stop there for a second. I am sure of this. There's a lot of things that we're uncertain about. There's a lot of things I'm sure the Apostle Paul, as great as he was, was uncertain about. I mean, you and I sit in this room, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen next year. We don't know what kind of natural catastrophes are going to happen next year. We don't know who's going to be elected president next year. We don't know how the economy is going to go for sure next year. I don't know who in this congregation, first or second service, will be diagnosed with a terminal disease next year. Or who will be missing next year. I don't know at what point that latent cultural hostility to the gospel will become a physical and legal hostility to the gospel in the church sometime. That's an uncertain unknown in the future. So many uncertain things. I'm uncertain even for the future of my family. But what Paul's about to say in verse 6, he says, I'm sure of this. I, I am convinced of the truthfulness of what I'm about to say. In other words, it's one of those things you can hang your life on. It's ironclad. It's like a steel beam that goes down three miles into the ground and you can hold on to it and it ain't going to move. This I am sure of. And then he goes on to make an amazing theological statement about the character of God as it relates to our salvation. That he who began a good work in you. Now let's take a knife and slice right after you. Because what he just stated was in the past tense. And what he's about to say in the latter part of verse 6 is in the future tense. I'm sure of this. That he who began in the past a good work in you. Now, one of the bad things about being familiar with verses is oftentimes we're so familiar with them, we don't overturn each word and consider their connections. Like, I started to look more deeply into this verse, which I memorized as a kid, and realized it's making a massive connection that, that I think just makes my heart go, wow, this is huge. Three words, began, good, and work. Those three words in various forms are found in the very first two chapters of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Begin, began. Same word, just slightly different inflection. We're told that after the seventh day of God's work, or after the sixth day of God's working, he rested. And we're told that he looked on all that he had created, and he saw that it was good. In other words, he's describing for us what God did in Philippi and what he continues to do in our day as a work of creation. 
as a work of creation. He is framing or talking about what they experienced when they came to faith in Christ and understood who he, who he was. In terms of Genesis 1 and 2, the Spirit of God is making a new creation right here in your town, and I'm giving thanks for it. He, he began a good work in you. That's the way he thinks. And it's part of understanding kind of the massiveness of how the Bible fits together and I hope gives you a sense of the grandness of God's plan. Old creation and new creation. And when he speaks of what happens when the heart comes to faith in Christ, it's a work of creation. And he describes it in similar ways in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, um, God who said, let there be light has shown a light in our hearts of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He's describing what takes place in the heart of faith and conversion as a, as a work of creation. Like God said, let there be light. And all of a sudden Dan's like, wow, there's a God. And he has made himself known in Jesus and he's paid for my sin. That's, that's, that's creation. That's what he did. He's shown a light into your heart. He's the one who began that work. And I just picture it, I mean, the power of it. The same breath of God that moved upon the waters over the dark waters and said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, everything started to expand and create and form. It's the same breath of God that moved upon the dark hearts of this tiny place of Philippi and spoke, be created and let there be light. And hearts saw for the first time. It's a work of, of creation, of new creation. And that's, that's at the center, really, and the scope of what Jesus came to do. We oftentimes think of Jesus' Christianity and the gospel as something very thin and very narrow and small. As if what it's really about is simply Jesus came to die for my sin, he rose again to give life so that I could accept him into my heart and then bug out to heaven when I die. In a lot of people's minds, that's, that's what it is, and, and it seems very small and thin, and it's, it includes that, to, to be sure. But the whole idea that Jesus simply died and rose again so that I could accept him into my heart and bug out and not go to hell but go to heaven is very individualistic and, as I said, very, very thin. Now, to be sure, it includes that, and I am thankful, not so much the bug out part. But understand this, and I believe this with my whole heart, and I'm convinced by everything I've read in Scripture and outside of Scripture this to be true, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the pivotal point that will bring about a whole renewed universe. He died to take away the curse on the universe, so that he could replace it with blessing. He died to take away the death, which we all deserved, and give us his life. That's new creation life. Being born again is a new creation life. That he took the wickedness of the old fallen world and exchanged it for the righteousness of the new created world. And that just blows my, my mind that that's how, that's how big and expansive the work that God came to do in Christ. And one of my, 
One of the guys I like reading, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, put it this way. And surprised by hope, he said, The claim advanced in Christianity is of this magnitude. And this just blows away the whole idea that, well, Jesus just came just for me so that I could accept him into my heart and bug out before I go to hell and go to heaven instead. Again, like I said, it's included, but this is the claim. This is the massiveness of what Christianity is, and Jesus in particular. Jesus of Nazareth ushers not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic, as in rules to live by, which a lot of people think that's Christianity, ethics, or a new way of salvation. No, Jesus of Nazareth ushers in a new creation. He's going to renovate it all. It all goes back to that point. And this, what he's speaking to back in this verse in Philippians is this part of his unfolding new creation. Not so much in the physical world as, as much as in the spiritual world. As God is renovating, renewing, and recreating hearts. Our broken world has at its heart selfishness and pride and, and hatred and and the new creation life that, that God brings into hearts when he's, he moves upon dark hearts and says, let there be life. It begins to reverse the process so that people who are fundamentally selfish become p- people who are fundamentally self-giving and self-sacrificing. People who are haters into people who are lovers. People who are in despair into people who experience the joy of the Lord. People who are conflicted and at odds with everything into people of shalom or people of peace. And it all comes about by God creating. That's what he began in Philippi. And if you are a believer, your faith is an evidence that God spoke a creative word into your heart. When you heard about Christ and you heard about what he'd done and there was a a life opening, God touched your heart. He, He said, let there be light, let there be life. And he began this good Genesis work in your heart. Do you remember the day that you came to faith? I know some people don't. I do remember a time that that, that before and after I experienced something of a new taste of life. And I just remember thinking, this is so different. And all I can do now that I've studied it out, it wasn't just that I walked an aisle and bowed a knee and said a prayer. It's that the Lord... To let there be light. And in love and grace, he opened my heart to himself. And there are people in this room who have experienced that. You have faith in Christ. God began something in you. And it's real. It's eternal. It's powerful. It's life-altering. It's a new creation. Paul's saying to the Philippians, he's saying to us, Parkway. He's begun a good work, a creative work. He began a creative work when 48 and a half years ago, a small family came into Fairfield with the attempt of planting a church, and you all are a result of it. God began a gospel work. He began a creative work in Fairfield at that time. It's not the only one, but it's one, a new creation. This is an outpost of new creation life. That's what it's meant to be. We celebrate the new creation we have in Christ. 
We celebrate the Jesus who came to give it to us in his death and his resurrection, but he's began it. Now that's cool. But the next part is intended to communicate confidence. That is, what God started, he will bring future tense into completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here, again, this massive theological truth statement about how God works is that what he started, he will finish. There's no contingency whatsoever in will bring. It's not may bring or might bring. It's he will bring the work he started to completion. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but there's some tasks I finish and there are other tasks that I don't. Do Do you have like, you know, people like to scrapbook? And, you know, you scrapbook and you get halfway through and then it sits up in your closet for like 25 years. And you pull it back down you're like, oh, I'll never finish that. Sometimes because we don't have enough focus or we don't have enough time. I remember, uh, I think I told you guys a little over a year ago, I decided that I was going to rip the shake roof off my house and put a brand new roof on. And um, just me and my 16-year-old son. And there I was on top of a flimsy ladder two stories up at the corner of it with a shovel and pulling off the shakes going, oh, my goodness. And I got halfway done, and I realized there's no way I can do this. And that's a little bit of a scary place to be considering the fact that it was August and the rains are coming. Like, it has to be finished. But I had neither the expertise nor the energy to finish it. A lot of things that we do in life are left unfinished. You know, you tour the country of Jordan to this day, you'll find half-built buildings. It's like a family builds a building, and then this part, just rebar sticking up. It's like, did you run out of cement? Did you run out of rebar? Because half the building's there, but the other half's not there. What, 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 What gives? Well, the energy and the money and everything to finish it apparently didn't materialize. The life that God started in you and I, we in and of ourselves have no power to complete. Not by ourselves. Nor can we bear ultimate responsibility for bringing that work to completion. Because that will press upon us downward the sense that if I don't perfect myself, that is, if if I am not fully formed into the image of Jesus then I will have failed to complete the purpose of God for my life. And Paul's reminding all of us, it's like, listen, we have choices to make. You can choose to come to church or not. You can choose to open the scriptures and meditate upon the word of God, with Jesus at the center. You can choose to wander into sin or worship the wrong things, no doubt we have choices to make and we have a responsibility in those choices, but we exercise those choices and that responsibility in the bedrock knowledge that it's him who completes what he starts in us. That brings us a level of confidence in our lives. It's like, all right, Lord, I'm trusting you started this thing. And here's a promise Based upon your faithful character, that what you start, you will finish. God is not a God who starts something and peters out halfway through. If he did, he'd be a failure. 
but he finishes every project he starts. If he started new life in you, he will complete that life in you. And nothing can change that. You look at through the whole, the whole history. Abraham, great guy, screwed up, lied. God finished the course for his life. Isaac, following after his father, also somewhat of a liar. And yet God finished the course in his life. Jacob, the supplanter. The one who deceived people. God finished the course for his life. Moses, the one who, who killed an Egyptian for unjust reasons. And yet God finished the course for his life. He never gives up on his people. What he begins, he finishes. Even in the whole story of the Bible, when he began Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything fell apart. God decided, God wasn't going to say, well, screwed up on that one, or they screwed up on that one, to crumple up the old creation, throw it away, and start all over again. He said, no, what I started in Genesis 1-1 will be completed in Genesis 21-1. He always finishes what he starts. If he started new life in your life, he will finish that life. If he started a work in this church, he will finish the work in his church. And not just the work in our hearts, but, but the... Uh, like God does this work of new creation through us too. Listen, listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And I want you to pay attention to the vocabulary. Compare it here to Philippians and then compare it to Genesis. After he talked about, by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves and so forth. He says, for we are his workmanship. That's a big kind of creation implying word. He's the workman, he's the craftsman. For we are his workmanship created. In Christ Jesus, for good works. Same vocabulary. The word created, Genesis 1-1, good and works. In other words, he has in store for us as people to do the works of new creation. As we proclaim Jesus, live Jesus, and have the Spirit in our hearts, God is, is creating these little outposts of new creation life. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's all connected to this idea of God's unraveling new creation. Our purpose is to bring heaven into, into the real world by way of the Spirit and by way of the gospel. To God's presence into the world to displace darkness. That's, that's, that's heaven down in the real world. That is, that is our mandate. It's not just to evangelize. I mean... Evangelism is a huge piece of declaring the, 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 the truth about Jesus, but we evangelize so as to see new creations happen. New creation life. This may sound stupid, and if it is, throw in the trash, and I'll close with this. I like science fiction movies, and... Um, in some science fiction movies, space science fiction movies, you know, they have these things called uh, terraformers or terraforming. You've heard of that? Anybody? Oh, please. Thank you. There's somebody out there who likes. 
that stuff. I'm not talking Star Trek here. Where, you know, it's like they, they either through biotechnology or mechanical technology, they create something that can go onto a dead planet like Mars, and, and through either biotechnology or me mechanical technology, they can start to recreate the atmosphere of, of, of that planet so that it becomes inhabitable, right? They're actually transforming the atmosphere. Or if you've seen, seen Man of Steel, you know, they have the world changer that comes down and begins to change the atmosphere in a bad way, of course. And I just thought, you know... In, in many respects, our Christian lives are, are like that terraforming kind of thing in which God begins a work of new creation in us. And then he has called us as those created in Christ for good works to walk in those good works and to see God's creative life, creation life, like, like multiply so that we become like these world changers. God changes the atmosphere of our hearts so that it could be inhabited by the living God. And that we, as we live out our Christianity and live out a Jesus-centered faith, we start to see that God begins to change or transform the environment in which we're living, whether that's in your neighborhood or the place you work or in your family. He begins to do that work of world-changing. That's why we're here. And that's what happens when a church is fundamentally and fully committed to loving, living, and declaring the supremacy of Jesus in all things to all people, it begins to change the world. It forms the world. And that's the heart of, I believe, our church. And I hope and pray that we stay, every one of us, centered right there. And if you don't know him, you don't know the Lord. Listen, he, he radically begins the work of recreation in your life. When you say to him on the basis of his death and his life, yes, I trust him. And it alters your universe. And I pray if you're here and you don't know him, that would be something that you would do. But listen, are you a world changer? Are you a terraformer? God who began a good work in you, he will complete it. And God who began a work in this church, he will complete it. Especially and in light of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he will bring all of that new creation life to its final conclusion and recreates it all. Amen. God, may that be so in our lives, in our church. I just pray for us. I pray for the protection of this church body. I pray for the humility of this church body. I pray for the integrity of this church body. I pray for its commitment to Jesus first. And ultimately, I pray that um, you would create a hunger and thirst for him that is uncontainable and, 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 and radiant. Lord, I pray that you'd break down the strongholds in our life that keep us from experiencing that kind of world-transforming power in our lives, whether we're worshiping the wrong thing or we have been sidelined or we have gone off course. Please, Father, I pray for you to continue that work of transformation, trusting and knowing ultimately what you began, you will bring to conclusion. And we're so thankful that you're that faithful and that we can rely upon that faithfulness every second of every minute of every day. Lord, you are good. You are great. We love you. We ask you to continue to pour out your grace because we need it. We need it every day of every week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.